welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Hello, Paul. What's going on today? Uh, doing well. Fantastic. Uh, it's been an interesting week. Um, my son has a um, um, at school, he's a senior now. We've talked about this. He's looking at colleges. We're still waiting for stuff to come back. But he has this program at his school called Senior Options, where he has to find a hundred-hour internship um, in a field that he wants to be in. And and kind of long story short, as we've talked about, he he he's interested in computer science. Um, he had his. I had another teachable moment this week. He reached out via email to a local business owner who does computer repair and, and setups and networking. And, um, he set the tone and, and, and he went and emailed them. The guy emailed them back and said, Hey, I don't have anything right now, but if you still want to come in and chat, I'm available to chat. And so my son set up the appointment and he went down there and I put in his hand, a a folder, like a nice leather folder with copies of his resume, his academic resume with his summer work and, and such. And he was able to go down there. Now, he didn't get the internship because they really didn't have a spot. They didn't know how to fit this in. But the guy spoke with him for an hour and a half. Wonderful. Which I thought was great, right? I, I think that it was a really good teachable moment, and, and I think it built confidence in himself. And now he's ready to send out more emails to other local business owners and see if he could cultivate this internship. So I thought that was great. Um, just another teachable moment. And then just on the home front, just a generator issue. I think we talked about it on the last show. Uh, my generator folks came over to take a look at it. They ran the diagnostics. Of course, they couldn't find anything that was wrong with it at this point. So we're, it's now on the watch list to see if it happens again. Uh, but you know, that's home ownership, right? Whether it's the generator or the hot water heater, or the hot water tank, or whatever you have, there's always going to be an issue, right? So so that was kind of my week. Paul, how was your week? Uh, my week was pretty good, pretty interesting. Um, lots of stuff going on here. You know I had a, what do you call it, a side hustle, and I think it's another episode we could do, Paul, and that's around when is enough enough with a side hustle, right? So, you know, I had some fire department product thing that I was working on with with a business partner. And um, it, it's it's interesting because it's at a point where it's starting to get really interesting there, but I don't have the time to dedicate to it anymore. So trying to figure that out. So it could be an interesting episode for us where I, I have to make a decision of, you know, how much do I still want to put into that, um, knowing where I'm going with other things I'm working on. You know, I'm going to do something with uh, my secondary property in the future. And that's going to take a lot of time meeting with, whether it be architect or builder or whatever. And I can't do everything. And, and I think that's the biggest takeaway on that. So I think there's an episode there though. Otherwise yeah. all good here. Yeah. I think there's two episodes. I think there's one where <laughs> enough is enough and one is time and management of that time, right? And where to dedicate your time. So maybe there is either a combo or something there. So we'll definitely we'll definitely talk through that. Um, today's podcast is with Tony Giancola. We'll, we will discuss buying real estate in a hot market. But first, let's talk about some news we saw this past week. Okay, so the first news story, Paul, was um, from CNET Money. How to save, invest, and earn more for a better 2022. 
right, so this is by uh, Farnoosh Tarovi, and uh, if I hope I pronounced her name okay. Um, it was an interesting story. It talks about the basics of, you know, uh, paying down debt, making that a priority, focused on saving, making sure you're focused on saving. Um, behind on retirement savings, bank on the new contribution limits, which we'll talk about in the next story. Um, eyeing a new house, avoid knee-jerk reactions to rising interest rates, and want to make more money, engage your employer. So I thought these were all interesting. My takeaways, Paul, there were three that kind of jumped out at me. One was they plug in the story an application called Digit, which is helping you save and invest, which ironically, um, I think you could do it on your own and avoid the $5 a month management fee that they charge or the usage fee for the app. I, I thought that was a little bit, uh, a little, a little bit shady, right? They mm -hmm. put that in there. <laughs> the other was the, the other one, which we'll probably talk to Tony more about today is around the house fever over rates, right? When is it, how do you balance that out? You know, rates are climbing, but you want to get the house. Do you sacrifice, uh, what you really want in the next home that you want to buy versus saving on the rate. And we could talk about that a little bit with him. And then they talk about this this phenomena, the great resignation, right? Which which is probably another podcast episode to kind of dig into that because quite frankly, I have to research it more. I'm trying to figure it out. I know that the job market is hot. There's a lot going on, but I fear that people might get job fever and they might have a really good job and they decide that they want to keep up with the Joneses and go to another job, which may not be as great as the job they had. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with this story, Paul. Um, what was your take on this story? So the, the biggest thing about the job fever thing, um, we've seen that where I work. So we've actually had people leave and say, can I come back? We've had that a couple of times. Um, but number five in this article here, want to make more money, engage your employer. What the thing I did not know about was the CARES Act temporarily allows you, uh, allows employers to provide up to $5,250 in tax exempt student repayment contributions. So that's sort of like a lower to, it's almost like a sign on bonus, Paul, but they can help pay it pay off some student loans, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize that was in the CARE Act. Um, I, I think they're trying to be creative. You know, the, the kind of war for talent is interesting, and I think it's twofold. One is, yes, you have the great resignation. It, it's sort of a trifecta of things. So you had COVID, a hot job market, and the great resignation is part of COVID as well. But all those, and the other fact that people are missing Sort of number four is the age of our U.S. population is getting a little bit older. So there are less people in the workforce as the baby boomers have left and even Gen Xers are retiring a little bit earlier. There's less to fill that void and that's what's feeding all this. So they have to be creative in getting and retaining the employees. So I just thought that was an interesting one. Cool. Cool. No, I think that's something we'll have to dig into on a separate episode. I want to investigate that further. It sounds very interesting. So um, the next story that we're going to cover is uh, from CNBC. Now is the time to boost 401k contributions for 2022. So it feels like both these stories this week should have been a part of our New Year's episode, but that's okay. Um, I still think they're very pertinent and very uh, important. I did. I think we did mention uh, the contributions, but you know, just to kind of reiterate, because it is very important, um, it's up a thousand dollars from 2021 to 20,500 in terms of the max you could contribute to your 401k. Um, and of course, if you're over 50, 
like myself, um, you're or older, um, you're going to you are allowed to do catch-up deposits of up to 6,500. So I thought that was, um, you know, just a a timely story just to let people know while it's early in the year um, to make sure that they have their contributions set because it is very important to um, uh, plan for retirement. So the two things that jumped out at me, Paul, of course, were one, the catch-up contributions. I remind my wife as well as I double-check my my contributions. I want to make sure I'm, I'm using and leveraging that lever for catch-up contributions. And then the other thing that was interesting, which I had a discussion with with another buddy of mine recently, is know the rules of your company. Um, Some companies allow you to front-load your 401k from you know uh, earlier in the year, um, so you could take a lot less take home and and front load it to get it over with. Some people spread it throughout the year. Just know your rules, right? Because every company does it slightly different. Some companies may force you to evenly distribute those contributions throughout the year. Um, it just and I'm not, I don't want to get into a debate on it or get into kind of uh, the nuances of it, but just check with your company what what do they do in terms of contributions so you can max match your contributions to get the maximum benefit from your company's match. I'll say that three times fast. So Paul, what was your take on this story? So, so Paul, that was, that was a thing that uh, I've often looked at is, well, if I front load, you know, will they still match the same amount? And, and to your point, that is exactly it. You got to understand the rules of the road for your employer and how they're doing it. Um, and yes, the whole front loading versus balancing, that is, you know, obviously a, a whole debate, you know, do you want to front load and be in the market more and longer or do you want to balance it out? That was the one thing that uh, has always irked me about the 401ks at, uh, at employers. It's never clear as to how that matching works. So great call out by the article. I'm glad that they did that one. Very cool. Very cool. Well, with that, uh, we'd like to now welcome to the podcast, Tony Giancola. Uh, we will discuss buying real estate in a hot market. Florida is one of the hottest real estate markets in the country as of this recording of this podcast. Tony is the branch manager at Go Mortgage and the co-owner of Remax Elite Realty in the greater Tampa Bay area in Florida. Tony and his wife, Michelle, have worked together in the real estate industry in Tampa Bay area since 2003. They have managed to build one of the most respected and professional real estate and mortgage organizations in the Tampa Bay area. Tony, welcome to the show. Gentlemen, good morning. Thanks for having me. Very cool. Very cool. So, Tony, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. We always try to start the topic off with that. I want to hear a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of go into those uh, pointed questions that we'll discuss that our audience uh, wants to hear in terms of buying real estate in a hot market. Yeah, sure. Um, As you said, actually, and I apologize, guys, I got a little bit of residual sinus congestion. So, uh, We started in the the real estate business in 2000 as uh, agents. Uh, We started with a small independent company, quickly made the move over to the Remax brand in uh, actually the the week after September 11, 2001. Funny funny story there. Um, And joined the Remax network uh, as a husband and wife team. Uh, grew into a full-blown team with an administrative assistant and a a couple of buyer's agents. In 2004, uh, we started as an independent real estate brokerage, small group, um, meandered and bought our first REMAX franchise in 2008. 
And now we own two Remax offices, one in Palm Harbor, Florida, one in Dunedin, Florida. Uh, I subsequently got my uh, mortgage license in 2003 uh, just, just based on wanting to provide both the options for the consumer as well, and expertise as well as to try and ensure the client experience. Uh, just watching it over the first three years in the industry, seeing how different uh, transactions and consumers would be impacted by the people they chose. So it, it's been quite the journey. Uh, our, our basic focus on our brokerage model is to uh, partner with full-time agents that are fully committed to the to a real estate career that the business and this is not a and knock on any agent that's doing it on a part-time basis but there's a tremendous amount of uh, part-time agents in the industry we didn't want to go that route so we really commit to the quality of the agent versus the quantity of the agents in our office and I think over especially last year and if you're interested I could share the data um, our agency really stood out as being a, an elite agency for the type of agents that, that work with, that we work with. That's oh, wow, very cool. wonderful. Good yeah, thought, I think, sorry. yeah, I was going to say from a, from an agency perspective, I love that quantity, uh, quality over quantity, right? I think you see a lot of agencies where, uh, you look at their roster, there's 40 people on there selling homes and maybe 10 are full-time, right? And the rest are part-time. And so I could see your point. Um, personally, when I bought in a hot market in 2004, um, um, I had an agent at the time um, that was uh, in the game full-time at the time. Um, it's funny, shortly afterwards, she exited the game, which was interesting. I, I don't know why that happened, but um, it, it was a very frenzied market for me anyway in our area in the Northeast in 2004, and I thought it was crazy back then. Um, from your experience, how is the market today compared to 2004, at least from a, through the Florida lens, from your vantage point? Yeah, it's, you know, you can argue that there's similarities, but when you sort of do a deep dive, you, you find the differences, right? In 2004, the market was hot, um, but it was primarily, you know, in general terms, a local market. It was fueled by trade up, trade down, replacement inventory because the, the, the consumer that was selling was buying a new property and it was definitely fueled by the type of mortgages that were available because it was easier, right? And, and let me just preface this by saying mortgage money is readily available today, but it's done in a way that is probably definitely more sustainable than it was in 2004. And I'm talking about stated income, stated asset versus uh, full doc or even document it for businesses in a non-QM world where you're, you're providing bank statements and things like that. So it was definitely fueled by a different brand of transaction and a different brand of financing. What we're seeing today that really makes it off the charts in Florida especially is, it, you know, it's like a gold rush. Everybody in the country wants to be here. Mm. Right? So we're seeing, whereas, whereas and even if you say historically, if you just don't look at that 2004 to 2006 arena, uh, historically, sure, we had a lot of, of transplant buyers, 
Uh, we also had a tremendous amount of second home buyers that would, would infiltrate. But I would say that the lion's share of our, in, on our brokerage over the years, the lion's share of our transactions were local in nature. You know, high 70s, 80% range. You know, now you're seeing this influx of consumer from northeast, out west, I mean, anywhere in the country. Um, and then you couple that with the tremendous amount of cash purchases coming into the marketplace. Uh, it's at a level that I've never seen before in my 22 years in this business. Um, and I believe that that's fueled by there's increased equity throughout the country. Uh, if you use like your marketplace, for an example, people are selling their properties at the new market range. They're cashing out their equity. They see tremendous value in our marketplace and freedoms. And they're coming down here and they're they're just investing cash, right? So they're buying their properties for cash or near cash. Um, that's putting a segment of the population that's here on the sidelines. I mean, we've got pre-approvals stacked up that can't win deals, right? So we're trying mm -hmm. to coach those people through that. Um, and that's what we're seeing. I mean, and then when you look at that sort of aspect, if I have if I have Paul coming into my marketplace buying a house here, which we welcome for sure. He's not selling a house here. So there's no replacement inventory. So there's way more buyers than there is inventory, right? And that's the reason why. But most consumers don't understand that. And, and honestly, they don't know where to find that information. And I think it's really important that they know. We try and take some time at least sharing the data. I hate to use the word educating the buyer because I think they can take that the wrong way. But I, I do think it's... It's an advisory role to put them into that place and explain to them what's going on. And hopefully they, they, they take the time to go and research what we're saying, because definitely you can document it. But it, it creates a really interesting dynamic. And that's the difference between that boom market in 04, which, in my opinion, you know, in hindsight, not sustainable. And why this is a very, although intensely hot market is extremely sustainable and will continue for some time. Wow. So, so Tony, that's really interesting about, you know, the replacement. You know, I, I, I personally had not connected those dots, <laughs> even though you and I have been talking for probably six months now on, yeah. on this topic, right? So yeah. uh, I, I never thought of it from that lens. And I, I consider myself maybe a, a, an above average bear on understanding some of these things. So that's a really, really great point. So hearing what you've just said, you know, what's sort of a recommended strategy for a buyer in, in such a hot market? I mean, you were talking about people <clears throat> with pre-approvals can't can't even get it in because of cash buyers and, and things like that. So what are you seeing that's um, been effective? Yeah, so it's it's that's a great question. And and I will start by saying we are advising people to do things that I would have never dreamed of advising them even 18 months ago. So the first thing is the re is understanding the reality of what we talked about and at least trying to again, advise you as a potential buyer or seller what's going on in the marketplace, right? <clears throat> so when you look at that, the first thing you got to tell people is <clears throat> the house is worth what you think it's worth, right? I mean, when I, I tongue-in-cheek humor, when somebody asked me what the comps are today, 
I, I don't even know how you answer that question because statistically, those, you know, comp is a statistic. And those statistics are changing basically on a daily basis with every sale, right? So then you've got what the market will bear and what the statistical value is. And they're two different things. So you, you at least have to acknowledge that and accept that as a premise. The other thing that you have to, to really buy into as a consumer in this market is you don't have time to think about it. You just, you know, if, you, if you're looking at the house, you're not alone. You have to accept that. And there's more people looking at it today than there was, you know, a year ago. So there's more competition. Competition breeds urgency, right? So you have to accept that. And look at that's hard. I mean, you've got people spending three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, and you're saying you don't have time to go home and think about it. So it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's reality. And then it's really putting your best foot forward. So what is a listing agent going to uh, review with a potential seller? Well, the contract's got a lot of nuances in it, but the big stuff are as follows. You're going to look at what's the offer price. What's the terms and conditions on the on the deal? Is it a cash deal? Is it a finance deal? If it's a finance deal, what's the amount of money being put down and what's the closing date? And then your your inspection times and what the expectations are there. So they're really <clears throat> your big three when it comes to consideration. You know, clearly in this marketplace, we're seeing over market offers on properties. We're seeing uh, completely reduced or waived inspections. And, you know, financing has to be, you know, a buyer's really got to be pre-approved, not pre-qualified. And in a lot of cases, either minimizing or removing the contingencies that go along with the financing with their right to cancel. So giving up their right to cancel on a mortgage or giving up their right to the appraisal impacting the mortgage they're the big things that we're definitely seeing. Wow. So um, I kind of wanted to hop into strategies for sellers, but I, I, you said something interesting in there, and that is the amount being mortgaged, right, is a, is a lever. And if, if I'm a seller, and part of me is like, it doesn't matter. I'm getting the money. I'm going to. It's all coming to me, whether it be bank or cash or, you know, 70-30 ratio, 50-50 ratio. So why does that matter to the seller? Well, first, let me say I agree with you 100%. Okay, so in practice, you are spot on. But then you get into the psychological part of the sale, right? So it's certainty. If you're coming in as a cash buyer, I can tighten that up where if you default and you don't close, your, your money's at risk. So that gives the seller that certainty that that deal is going to close and or outside you exercising your rights in the contract. Let me be clear. But if you if, if the contract goes smoothly, you just can't walk away from the deal, right? Uh, in the case of a mortgage, I think that the consumer has some anxiety, the selling consumer has some anxiety. You know, what if it doesn't appraise? What if they don't get approved? There is a third party involved there that's involved in that decision. You as the buyer that's getting the mortgage is 
you know, they want the house, but they don't really have the final say on the money. And, you know, you have to trust as the seller or the seller's agent in, in, in unison with the seller has to trust that the, the process is going to go smoothly and that you're going to get proper information in the transaction and that it's going to close on time. Because let's face it, you as the seller are probably moving somewhere, right? So you need that certainty. So it gets into really some unique detail on, and, and this, Paul, is why it's important that you pick the right listing agent that can help you navigate this, the experience of the listing agent on this transaction. I think a lot of people get involved and they don't really care who their agent is because it is conceivably an easier market, right? But it's really not because these details matter. And if the agent's doing a good job, a, a, a good mortgage transaction should be on equal footing with a cash deal, it should not matter. Agreed 100%. But absent the proper care and diligence in the administrative phase of the contract, I look at the contract as having three phases, the marketing or selection phase, the contract and negotiation phase, and then the administrative phase, the contract to quote. God, I think that the agent's value is primarily in that contract, in that administrative phase. And that's why it makes a difference. Yeah, that's very interesting that you said that in terms of paying attention to the details, uh, Tony. I had an incident before I bought the house that I'm in. I wanted to buy the house across the street. And at the time in 2004, especially in this area, you know, pre-approval was, was key and, and flexibility was key and, and, and pace was key. Um, so our offer was that we came in strong with, with, with a good <laughs> offer um, with no contingencies and we could close in, in, in less than, than 10 days. It got translated from the realtor to realtor to the seller that we had to close in 10 days and we lost the deal. And the house went for more money. The next offer that came in that they took was 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 actually less money than we offered. That's what I was trying to say. So I think to your point, details matter. And if you don't have a veteran real estate agent that's watching your back, whether you're a buyer or a seller, right, you really uh, could, could kind of screw up the deal. Now, it, it, it happened, right? And you, you can't cry over spilt milk. We actually bought the house across the street. It worked out okay. But in hindsight, it, it was really kind of sad that, that the deal got screwed up over something so minute. And that was kind of leading to my next, my next um, question, which you kind of alluded to already, was what are some of the most common mistakes either a buyer makes or a seller makes in trying to sell a home or buy a home? Yeah, I think uh, on the selling side, I think that I think they really do minimize. And, and by the way, let me preface this by saying it's it's the real estate industry's fault for this statement. It's not the consumer's fault. But I think the on the seller side, it's minimizing the value of the agent in the transaction. It's not to say a seller can't sell their, their house themselves. I'm not, you know, there's successful buy owner transactions all the time. But, you know, I think it's the, the simplistic way to look at it is everybody thinks you put the house in the MLS and it sells and it's all said and done and the agent does nothing, right? Um, but again, I think it's a really 
if everything goes smoothly, it's easy. I mean, let, let's face it. But minimizing that role of the agent and frankly, the agent not understanding the role in the transaction is the biggest mistake that sellers make. Uh, the other thing that I think is having the property ready for sale. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it, it, you know, it should be free of material defects. You know, everything should be in proper working order. There's always things that <clears throat> you see that the seller, that the homeowner doesn't know. You can't avoid that, right? But the obvious things you should know. Uh, we work with some home inspector, inspectors down here that have some really interesting things they're doing these days that can help that, like sort of a pre-inspection. But short of that, just making sure the house is ready to go. And then the biggie for me, over 22 years, I have one request of sellers. Don't miss showings. It's an mm. inconvenient process. If you're going to sell your house, it's inconvenient. I cannot make it convenient. Right. And you don't know who the buyer is that is going to see your house and want it the most. And if you're trying to make it convenient for you, you might make it inconvenient for them and you might just disregard your best buyer. Right. Um, on the buying side, I just I say this respectfully. I don't want to make anybody angry. I mean, you got to trust the agent's information and advice. I mean, I'm not saying don't verify it, but I can't tell you how many buyers will get research from third party that could, I'll use your example, uh, could be accurate in New York, but th that's different here in Florida, you know? So it's really teaming up with the right agent and going through the process and then really having an urgency to you as a buyer to make the decision, get your financials in order, do your inspections, and remove all the doubt. I think that in this market, that's what's really hypercritical for the buyer. I mean, that's that's what we're seeing. That that the ones that are following the the lead and trusting the advice, they're being successful. Yeah, that's so funny you say that, Tony, because. <laughs> I have, I actually have another story related to that. My in-laws were selling, um, in Connecticut and buying in Pennsylvania. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn and they did, you know, they followed their, their agent's advice in terms of textbook, getting the house ready, painting, landscaping, getting it depersonalized, all the kind of common, you know, things that you would do to get the house ready. Um, they had a young couple that wanted to buy their house and instead of listening to their agent, um, they were listening to, um, I think it was the, the wife's mother or the husband's mother in Ohio, not knowing markets, not knowing what's going on and trying to play hardball with my in-laws um, and in the pricing. And, and so what happened, long story short, um, they told their realtor to tell my in-laws, this is what our offer is. You have 24 hours to respond to it. Otherwise, we're pulling it off the table. They were playing really hardball in a really in a market you can't do that in, right? Um, the literally the next day, a builder came by, saw the house, and told my you know told my in laws sight on uh, right on the spot to the, to the realtor as well. I'm taking it. Whatever you're asking, I'll take it. I need you know. And and um, my in laws were like, well, you know, we have to we have to buy in Pennsylvania. How fast can you close? And the builder said, listen. I will put money in escrow. You could use that money to buy your next place in Pennsylvania. Wow. I'll help you, 
right? And 24 hours passed, and that happened. And the realtor for the other couple called, and my in-laws were like, sorry, house is gone. And the wife called my, my, my in-laws crying to reconsider, right? And, and it was just bad advice, right? Just bad advice, and the numbers weren't that drastically different, but they were getting coached by not their realtor, Right. And from somebody who not knowing the market. So I, I know that was a long winded story, Tony, and you're the expert here. But I just wanted to kind of add that color because it hit right on the head. I think what you're talking about is you have to trust your agent. Right. And, and when you're doing this right and go through that. So um, I can appreciate that um, in terms of, um, you know, making sure that you, if you want to elaborate on that a little bit more, how do people find the right agent? Well, that that's <clears throat> that's a challenge for us today, you know, because obviously, uh, uh, I don't I don't know if you guys will agree with this or not, but not everything you read on the internet is true, right? Um, it's not? No, no, shockingly <laughs> enough, it's, it's amazing <laughs> sources and methods, yep. right? Um, <clears throat> they, uh, I, I think it's just really important I, what we stress to our agents is taking the time to have an initial conversation with their potential clients about what the client's goals and aspirations are and to try and size up. If I'm the like using me as an example, am I the right agent for you? <clears throat> right? I mean, we all want to work with every customer, but, and, and I think that conversation has to go both ways. Have a deep dive conversation about experience in the industry, experience in the marketplace. Um, how does how does that agent work with a consumer with a transaction? I mean, I can simply tell you that I can share with any buyer or seller my roadmap through the transaction. And every this is a sales industry, right? I mean, make make no bones about it. This is a sales industry with pro on probably the single biggest transaction that most consumers are gonna make in their lifetime. Have that conversation and make sure it matches up, right? But I stress either working with an experienced agent or working with an agent that has less experience, that has experience behind them, you know? And then understanding what their roadmap is uh, to that transaction. And look, I think there's the business aspect to it that I just discussed and make no bones about it. It's personality. You should like the person, you know, it's, it's sales 101 because you're going to go through some, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, peaks and valleys, right? There's the high of finding the house. There's the stress of the negotiation. There's the high of winning the deal, there's the stress of the inspections, right? There's the, the stress of negotiating the inspections. Then there's the high of everything's buttoned up and we're going to closing, right? So look, you're going to be living with that person probably in the marketing phase. Well, right now the marketing phase is short, right? So, but in theory, you know, I mean, this market will pass at some time in the next few years. You're going to, if you're selling a house, you're going to live with the agent probably for two to six, two to five months on the selling side. If if you're a now buyer, you know, like you're really urgently in the marketplace, uh, you're probably going to live with that agent for two to three months, 
from hello to closing, yeah, you should you should pretty much get along, you know, and make sure you're on the same page. So I think experience and relationship. That's wonderful. You know, the way I found my broker in Florida was pretty funny. I walked the neighborhood we liked and happened to bump into Tony. That's how I found Tony. So, Paul, I got to um, tell you what's funny. I wear, I have these t-shirts that are literally, I, at this point, I think they're 18 years old. They're red t-shirts with a Remax balloon on them that say buying or selling a home, you know, and, and <laughs> I had that t-shirt on that day. I laugh about it, <clears throat> but they're 18 years old. I don't know how they hold up. Well, they're good quality, I guess. I guess Just, so. I think they cost $6. <laughs> Back then, now, now, now the twenty nine ninety five. Right, I don't know what they'd be today. Yeah, the guerrilla marketing was great. That's classic. I love it. So, so Tony, question: If a buyer has to sacrifice something in, in today's market, right? Because people are losing deals all the time. You and I, we, I, I lost a deal or two, right? As we yeah. were looking for yeah. a place for me, uh, I actually, my wife and I, we feel like we ended up in a better spot because of the first one we lost. Um, so if someone had to sacrifice something, what do you think buyers should be a little bit more bendable on that? Maybe they generally aren't, they're hung up on. Is there anything even? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And I have the perfect answer. Uh, we just talked oh, about this in our, in our sales meeting on Wednesday, I think as a buyer, you have to go with the theory that near is here. And I think that uh, that fits every category. So if it's close to your geographical target, it's in your geographical target. If it's close to the condition you, you would accept, it is the condition you would accept. And if it's close to the price point that you thought you were going to spend and you could still reasonably afford it, then it is the right price. Um, you know, it, it, the, uh, through the years, I'd always say to a potential buyer, uh, if I found you the perfect house today, would you buy it? And, you know, listen, if the answer would be, you know, a couple times, yes. And I would then say, great, there's no perfect house. Right. So I think especially today, you have to have a level of ex, ex, uh, a level of flexibility on your expectations. That's not to say that you sacrifice everything. But, you know, if you went in like an exaggerated example, if you went in saying, hey, I don't want to do any work to a house, but it meets the other criteria, you got to be willing to do some work because it's really hard in this hyper active marketplace with limited inventory to find the perfect house. So near here on every aspect. Near is here. I love the way you, you, you did that. Near is here. Very cool. Very, very cool. So I don't know, Paul, if you have something or you want me to go again. No, I love that near is here. I think it could be applied to anything, Tony, right? Like I think that could go for a lot of things, right? Whether you're buying a home or a car or uh, a new ATV, whatever, right? I don't know why I said ATV, but (laughs) I think that is kind of interesting. (laughs) 
was I, I guess I'm not as much a beachy person. I'm more of a, a mountains person kind of thing, right? So I, I think that's where potentially my my second home would be would actually be in the mountains on an ATV. That's kind of what I did growing up. So I know Paul with the boats and everything. You're more of a beachy person but i do love florida too right i just got back from uh from orlando i was stuck there for a couple of extra days uh but i do love going to florida and it's a lot of fun down there right so um but just to kind of switch topics for one second are you seeing a uh, are you seeing appraisals tony coming in in lower than offers because with this crazy market you got offer on top of offer and they're stacked five six seven deep um people get house fever and the and the the numbers go up right and then you got this top offer and if the appraisal doesn't come back right what is a buyer to do if they don't have the cash yeah i guess you said earlier in the episode it might not matter they're coming from a region or they have the financials to just do that but what do they do if they can't you know, if they if the appraisal comes in low, what do they have any options? Yeah, surprisingly, um, that has been better than I would have anticipated. But I would I would answer that with the caveat that we're on average, you know, if you look at the 22 years experience, I've never seen the amount of equity being put down on a transaction like I'm seeing today. I mean, you, you know. Prior to the last 12 months, I mean, you know, five, ten, three and a half to 10 percent down was the norm. And now mm. you're seeing the bigger 20, 30 percent down payments. So, you know, when you have those bigger down payments, uh, the appraisal's not impacted quite as much. So we're not seeing the appraisal pro- in the very beginning of this surge. It was a bigger problem than it is now because I think there's an understanding on it. But unfortunately, I think that for the buyer that has limited money down, um, they have to be either more patient or strategically, they can't, they they have to look at properties that have a little bit of age on them, on the marketplace, Mm. right? Because they're not going to compete on the brand new listing if they don't have that money to make up. And it goes full circle to the conversation we started with, right? The the sell the list the, the the seller is analyzing that, so they're looking at like hypothetically a cash deal where somebody putting thirty or forty percent down with somebody that's putting five or ten percent down, and that five or ten percent down offer is not even being considered. So you don't even get into that. What is is there an appraisal problem? Right. Mm. And the people that have the cash to put down, they're waiving their appraisal contingency. So it's irrelevant. Now, I will tell you this, that the strategy that we discussed with our agents was and I this is a funny thing. Uh, Mortgage guys and I'm a mortgage guy, too. Mortgage guys tend to think linear. Okay, so what I mean by that. You as a borrower come to me and say, I want to put 20% down. I do your pre-approval with 20% down and send you off and have a great time, right? Now you're out there as a buyer and you're putting all your offers together with 20% down. And you ask the question, well, now what if I have an appraisal problem where I'm in a competitive market with that mortgage? 
My thinking is both the agent and the more in collaboration with the mortgage person should think more three dimensional. Well, would you, Paul, as the buyer borrower, qualify with five or ten percent down? Because now you can use that extra ten or fifteen percent that you were going to use as down payment to offset any appraisal deficiency. And now yeah. you could put yourself in a competitive standpoint in a multiple offer situation. So there's really ways to mitigate it. But where does this come full circle to? You better pick the right uh, the right loan originator. You better pick the right realtor, right? Because most of them think linear. And you need a three-dimensional thinker in this marketplace to be able to put you in your best spot. Yeah, that was very insightful. I didn't even th- I didn't even think about that, right? So it's very interesting where you're you're I see what you're saying. I, I sort of did when I bought my first home, which was a condo, um it, it, the market was crazy. It was before 2004. It was in 2001. I'm trying to remember when I bought that condo. Um uh, but we had put very little down and we had made up um, that shortfall with a home equity line. So we had a combination of a 30 year mortgage and a home equity line. Like, um, and, and it was interesting. When I look back at the risk I took on, it's not like me to take on that level of risk, <laughs> but I literally put, I think 5% down and made up the rest with just loans and we survived it. It worked. Um, but knowing now what, uh, what I didn't know then, um, it, it's interesting. I don't know if I would have done that again. So I don't know, Paul, if you have any insights on that. One, you would not have done that again had you yeah, been probably. smart enough because I know you, all right? <laughs> yeah. Two, I had house fever. That's what you it had was. what? House fever, right? Yeah, I yeah, you, house, you did. We looked for so but, long and But that was also our, our mutual uh, mortgage guy. We did that same thing. Um, so, yes, looking back on it, that was risky risky stuff, yes. right? But yeah. Yes, yes. So, so Tony, uh, it's kind of to put you on the spot here, right? So what, what cautions do you have for sellers who want to do a uh, for sale by owner? We, we touched on it briefly before, but uh, I'm curious because I could see people, a lot of people, especially here where I am, you know, some of these homes are can be expensive, right? And that's that's a, a bigger commission, shall we say. And they're, they're lured by not paying that commission by trying to do the for sale by owner. Any thoughts on that from your perspective as the broker? Yeah. I mean, historically you, you look at it. And so we talked about that, that three phases of the transaction. And we talked about that uh, negotiation and administrative phase, right? So, you know, you have to look at it from a standpoint that you're probably really not going to save the commission. And I'll tell you why you want, you want mass market, appeal on your property. That's where you get the competitive bids and you drive up to the the top end of market value. So if you want top market value, you want max exposure. So that's the first part of it, right? You can't get that on your own. I mean, you you just, could you get somebody to drop it in the MLS for you? Probably. But most transactions, even, and I'm talking about this market and historically, Most transactions still involve a selling realtor, right, for the buyer. So that that buyer is going to come to you because why wouldn't a buyer? We could spend a whole hour talking about who actually pays the commission. It's a a really fun conversation, Mm. right? But 
Why wouldn't a buyer want that representation? There's no money out of the buyer's pocket. They're not going to, the buyer, the, the seller's looking to save the commission. If a buyer's coming to the homeowner without an agent, they're looking to save the commission. Two people can't save the same commissions. So historically, the seller winds up netting less on a buy owner transaction than they do on a, on, on a full-scale listing transaction. Secondly, if the buyer has representation through those two key critical phases, contract and negotiation and administration, right? Why would you want to take a shot and not have your own representation advising you and looking out for your best interest? Why? And then thirdly, and you have to be re, you have to look in the mirror all the time, no matter what you're doing. Are you going to manage the details proactively as a homeowner, or are you going to be in a reactive mode when things start going south, right? Or there's problems. And who are you going to turn to for your advice? If you select the right agent, they're earning every penny on their commission, no questions asked, and the transaction's going to go smoother and it's going to go on time. But it all goes back to full circle, right? You got to pick the right person. Just don't, you know, interview people. Don't just take the cheapest guy in the room or the cheapest gal in the room. Cheap isn't always better, right? And that doesn't mean you have to overpay, but get value. Get value in your transaction. And I really believe this. You don't have to walk away from the transaction with a friend from the consumer and agent standpoint, but you can walk away from the transaction with a relationship. And there's a big difference. Wow, that's that's really great and insightful there. So uh, I do have another one, and, and you, you almost touched on it a little bit, and we sort of edged on the fringe of it a few times there. But tools like Redfin and Zillow, you know, are they helping the buyers and sellers, or or you brokers, or has it made it has it made it more equitable in understanding what's available and. And just the, the whole dynamic has changed with both of those two offerings out there where here where I am, the MLS used to be really this small little tight-knit group and no one knew anything, only that group. But now everything's on online. I could be anywhere in the world and look at you know Zillow here in the U.S. So how do you think that's impacted and, and is it helping the buyers and sellers or – well, I, is there one more than the other? I don't know. Yeah, I think, look, from an exposure standpoint, you know, Zillow's done a great job marketing their brand. And, you know, it's a go-to for consumers to search. And I think from that standpoint, if you look at it, if, if the consumer uses it from a standpoint of just ease of use to see what's on the marketplace, uh, Zillow's great, right? No, no bullet bar. But also, again, understand, and this is where the, this is what makes my head explode. Um, the consumer doesn't real, you know, realize the dark side of it, right? Zillow is charging every agent to buy those leads. Zillow's charging every mortgage company to be a premier lender, right? And then they're giving your data up to all those people to solicit. And those people with no resume at all, other than they're writing a check, the perception is they're experts. So <clears throat> the Zillow premier mortgage person calls Paul 
and says, hey, I got your information off of Zillow. And it lulls you to sleep because you think they're a Zillow expert. They wrote a check, man. They bought your data, wow. right? Don't be lulled to sleep. So there's the there's the positive side of the exposure. And probably if somebody hears this, it'll be coming after me, right? There's the, there's the positive <laughs> side of it that, hey, consumer has more access to information. I'm a player for that, right? But there's the dark side that I just talked about. Then you get into these, these uh, the red fins of the world and open door or whatever, you know, and they're paying agents a small salary and a minuscule commission under the guise the consumer's going to get a better transaction. Well, they're getting inexperienced agents. Uh, I can tell you that the communication to and from on those transactions is god awful. I can tell you that the uh, fine print on what they thought they were saving is complete and utter BS. They're paying equal to more, right? It's garbage. Um, and then you go back to the the Zillow thing, right? And I and I have to throw this out there. We funded as an industry, the real estate community and industry and the MLSs funded the animal that Zillow is through paid for advertising under the guise that, hey, we're going to get leads easier. And to a large extent, it's true. Then Zillow jumps in and all of a sudden they're in the real estate and mortgage business. They're listing mm -hmm. properties. They they're have their own LOs. So we funded the competition. But irony is a great thing in life, right? They just had a bail on it because they lost yep. billions. So billions with a billions B. Billions with a B. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think everybody should really stay in their lane, you know, and the consumer should use the experts. And I use the. I'm not an expert. I'm just experienced, right? Um, go to the people that do it. Do what they do. Zillow's a great advertising tool. Use it for marketing. Use it for the exposure. Every agent, you know. We use it, you know, it feeds into all the MLS. It's a great tool there. But holy cow, use the professionals. Do your do your due diligence. Interview your agent. Interview your LO. Ask them if they're a linear. Ask them if they're three-dimensional. That's where you're going to get your best bang for your buck. Very cool. Very cool. You know, Tony, Tony – I, we could keep going for hours. We want to be cognizant of your time. Um, <laughs> there's like a thousand more questions, but um, the, the one question I have, and you don't have to answer this, uh, but I'm going to switch gears completely. Um, and I noticed on your your bio for your website and 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 such, and on LinkedIn, you, you work closely with with your spouse, right, yeah. Michelle? And and are there any tips or tricks for making that work well over the long term? <sighs> How much you time do we got? You can say, Paul, no, uh, no, I'll no, plead the listen, fifth. I, I don't know. I just, I had to ask the question because it, it's amazing to me people who can, who could do that relationship and, and keep it all in perspective and going. So uh, I'll let you yeah, answer buddy, if it, you want. A, I love answering. <laughs> and the cool part is my wife and I, uh, we are together 23 years this year on April 3rd is our anniversary for, for our first date. And then, uh, I think uh, uh, we're our 23rd wedding anniversary uh, this year. So, I mean, look, the, the, the first thing you have to do, and by the way, we've been working together now for, you know, our entire married life. 
okay? Uh, the, the first thing, and we didn't do this, so I'm, the first thing is not the first thing. Like, let me be fully transparent, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The first thing is you got to define your roles in the business, right? Um, and I think as with any business partnership, you have to have a common theme towards the direction of the business. And then, you know, you have to find that, you know, there's going to be conflict, right? I'm going to want to do things a certain way. She's going to want to do things a certain way. You got to find that happy medium and you, you have to agree to that compromise, right? I can tell you that it probably took us 10 to 12 years to figure out how to work together. Um, and, you know, when, once we did, life became really easy because there's no question about it that the conflicts on the business side can enter into the personal side. You, you can't help it. Right. So that's lesson two: define the lines. Right. Business is business. Personal is personal. And do your living best to not allow those two things to cross over. Right. Um, and I, I, I think being business partners is a microcosm on being partners in life, right? I mean, we are different people. We see things through a different prism. Uh, no matter how much we talk, no matter how much, how long we've been together, we just are different. And that's the healthy part of it. Um, the unhealthy part of it is when we're both trying to convince each other to see it our way or do it our way, you know, so that mutual respect to look, some of the things my wife does, and we had this conversation last night, drives me out of my mind. <laughs> and by the way, vice versa, right? Yeah. But what we learned is to really respect and appreciate those differences versus trying to change them. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Tony, we really appreciate your time today and joining us. This was awesome. We usually go into a little bit of a summary recap. I'll start and then, Paul, you'll kind of give your thoughts. And then, then, uh, Tony, we'll let you have the last word. Um, But from from, from me, what jumped out at me was trust your agent. I thought that was very insightful. I, I think people gloss over that. So I think that was very insightful. I love the terms lulled to sleep, right? So not getting into a trance with some of these other folks that you may be, uh, you know, that may call upon you to kind of work with. So don't, don't get lulled to sleep by them. And then I love the, I I almost want to steal this for the show, not an expert, just experienced. (laughs) You you said it so eloquently. Um, That's kind of what the financial dads are all about. We're not experts at any of this stuff, but we try to rely on the experts and we try to bring in the right team, whether it's a real estate agent, an attorney, an accountant, uh, life insurance, whatever that is, we try to bring the right people to the table. Uh, Paul, what was your takeaways from today? So uh, you had some great ones there, Paul. You, you stole one of mine, but then I stole it back from you. So thank you. But uh, <laughs> um, one is find the right agent for you. And, and Tony shared that early on during our discussion today. And, and having that understanding of of what you want and them listening and but hearing you so so when as using tony as an example to put him on the spot there when we were talking he actually really really heard my wife and i what we were looking for and that was really invaluable 
you know, because I could just text them, hey, will you see this one? Yeah, it's not for you or whatever. Like it, it just worked really, really well. And the other one that I, that Paul, you and I both really like that I'm stealing from, uh, is a uh, near is here. Near is here. You know that that's that's so eloquent in as you said, Paul. So many aspects of life. You can you can parlay into work. You anything you're doing. That that's a just a great great statement there. So I really love it. And um, I guess we're gonna hand it over to Tony. You know. Yeah, yeah, Tony. We'll let you have the last word before we close the show. So any any plugs, any takeaways, anything you want to leave the audience I, I, well, with? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on. I I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, anytime you want me back to have have a go at it, I'd love to come back. It was great. Um, Look, I I think just underlining the fact that, you know, from a real estate and mortgage perspective, just really digging deep with the relationship of who you're going to work with, right? Look for experience or someone that is backed by experience. So because I don't have a problem with newer agents, we have several newer agents in our office, but they're backed by our years of experience. Um, Look for someone. I've been in sales my entire life, okay? And I'm, I'll be 58 years old in May. The one thing that is so lost and on the whole industry and sales in general, good salespeople are not great talkers. Good salespeople are thorough listeners. And that's what you need in this. In, 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 look, I think it's true in any industry. But in this marketplace, in this industry right now, your loan originator and your more and your realtor, realtor, need to be great listeners and good advisors to you. So we come full circle to the relationship. And like I said, too many times I hear, you know, I'm working with a friend. We want to be the agents want friends. I, I've never seen an industry where. The agent's primary goal is social and friendship. <clears throat> it's insane to me when you look at the level of the transaction. Look for respect and relationship in the transaction between the agent and, and you as the consumer. And I think if you find that in a three-dimensional thinker versus a linear thinker, you are going to have your goals realized in the transaction. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you very much. I mean, this was, I, I can't, what a great closing. So with that, I, I have nothing else to say, but well, Paul and Tony, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul and Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you. 